Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast where classy guys say <laughs> yep. classical things about... I tried to remember how say. you introduced it last time. How did that go? I have no idea. It's classical, a podcast for classical stuff where... With classical people that know class, things classical, about classical stuff. That's good. Something. Anyway, welcome. Nailed it. And we are... Yeah, well, we're a podcast where we talk about classical education and stuff having to do with the classical world and classics in general. And my name is AJ Hannenberg, and I am joined by Graham Donaldson, who is apparently often imitated, never duplicated. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> He's giving us this, like, knowing, winky glance that you can't see as a listener. And Thomas Magby, who puts the classy and classical. Dean of life. Oh, yep. my. I, can we just, I, you, please don't turn it off. I know that we've not been <laughs> number one so far. <laughs> not yet. Uh, if you have never been to the podcast before, I'm all so three sorry. of us are, yeah, this is not an auspicious start. We, all three of us are educators. Uh, I teach mostly ninth grade English, senior thesis, and senior English at Veritas Academy. And my buddy Graham over here teaches almost the exact same things I do, except yep. he teaches 10th instead of 9th. That's right. He also teaches 12th English and rhetoric alongside me. And then Thomas Magby is the dean of student life and also teaches leadership. Uh, te yeah, I teach high school leadership. I teach eighth grade discipleship. And um, yeah, I did one act play first trimester also, but that is now done. Yeah, and he's just a lover of all things classical. I think when he came to this school, he sort of found his people, yep. which feel that way. is good. We're, we're glad to have him. He's sort of a recent addition. Graham and I have been teaching together for, what, going on six or seven years yeah. now? Mm -hmm. That is, It does not feel that long. It has been a good ride so far. It's been a good ride so far. Anyway, we all care about <laughs> education and the cool. classics, and today Thomas has something <laughs> for us, so Thomas is going to sort of lead us off. Yeah. So I'll be talking about an article called The Lost Tools of Learning, written by Dorothy Sayers. Um, we were talking before this podcast, and I think, AJ and Graham, you all have not read it I have before. never read it. Yeah. It is the article that launched a thousand schools, but I myself have never actually read the thing. Yeah. It, it seems appropriate that Dor Dorothy Sayers is a person who writes mm -hmm. things, says stuff. She, yeah. She says it's things. in the name. Yeah. Yeah. She should be a speaker if, instead of a... I, this was first presented um, uh, as a speech, I do believe, so... I'm, I'm just saying it. it's like if she were doing data entry somewhere, it'd be kind of a shame. <laughs> yeah. Data entryers is not nearly as good a name. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, so two episodes ago now, Graham talked about the trivium. So this, so I guess you, you go back long enough and it's, the, it's a Greek conception of how to approach uh, different topics. It, it, that's where the idea comes from. The medieval um, med medieval scholars adapted that Greek model and applied it to many different subjects uh, mm -hmm. in addition to also teaching um, grammar logic rhetoric as their own subjects in and of themselves but i think a reasonable question would be to say how do we go from medieval to us now having a classical school here in austin texas there's kind of a there's a little bit of a time gap between those two so one part of how classical education was popularized um, was one reason that we have the trivium now is um, dorothy sayer's article um, so as I was just saying, it was originally presented at Oxford in 1947, and like Graham was saying, it is it is the article that was influential in uh, starting the classical education movement. Um, so I guess with that, I'll just dive into what the article. I'm super else. excited because I don't know it. You don't know anything about Dorothy Sayers? I always confuse her with Doris Day, mm. which I know it's just like. So I, I often get my, my wires crossed and what she did. And <laughs> uh, Dorothy Sayers was a playwright, a poet, and a novelist, uh, probably most well-known for uh, her detective stories, which I think is cool. I don't read a lot of detective stories. I don't know if you all I, I feel like they they were a big thing back in the day. Now we have detective TV shows, but back in the, you know, detective stories used to be but huge. Like Chesterton Sherlock wrote detective Chesterton stories, and, and, and then she does. and I like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Was he a sir? I think he was I a sir. I think he was oh. a sir. Yeah. yeah, sure. And... And maybe more uh, interesting for us, she also translated Dante's Divine Comedy. So I don't mm, know mm -hmm, if either mm -hmm. of y'all have read her translation. I have not. Uh, so she, in the opening of this, this article, kind of makes fun of the fact that she is not an educator, but she is still talking about education, which does not really surprise me. I, when, when you all, like, go to parties and you're like, and people ask you what you do and you say that you're a teacher, don't they, like, you will very often hear opinions on education from people who are not teachers, Right. Oh man, I hear that's a hard job. Yeah, yeah, guys, yeah. Like, oh man, I could never do that. That sounds terrible. We should pay you guys more. Like you're shaping tomorrow's youth, man. <laughs> but the, or, or even the one I think of is that people will have like, well, you should teach this in yeah. your class. So when I when I came to this job for my last job, I had lots of people who were like, well, make sure you teach a class on 
practical things like knowing personal how to write finance. checks, yeah, yeah personal yeah. finance, things like that. So every, many people have opinions on. You should have bought Bitcoin. Is the <laughs> last name. <laughs> you should have bought Bitcoin. Now, as we're recording this, Bitcoin is something like eighteen thousand dollars per coin. Who knows where we're going to be say, at by the time this podcast? Yeah, the weird launches. thing is that we record way before these things air, Excellent. so we kind of missed the Christmas one. We a little bit got the New Year's one, and strangely enough. In I think this comes up on the ninth. Yeah. So in three days, it's my birthday. Oh, happy, oh, happy birthday! birthday. Happy wow, birthday. it's like a time machine we're on right now. I know it's crazy. It's I feel so happy and excited about my birthday, but it's not for a the long Hannenberg time. annual dance party is always a highlight. Yeah, is that actually? I to, yeah, I, I used to throw a dance party every year. Uh, one year it was Nicolas Cage themed. Mm. I think that was Exquisite. one of my best ones. Mm-hmm. One year it was maritime law, so you could come as a what? sailor, a pirate, or a lawyer. Or any combination of the three, a lawyer, pirate, a... It's a branch of law. Maritime law. Maritime <sighs> law. <laughs> I have no witty response to I really this. want to throw that party again because I feel you like should. it was... How long ago was that? People didn't quite take as advantage of it. You're a crook, Captain, Captain Hook. <laughs> For being a classical podcast, we, rep- we reference a lot of pop culture yep. stuff. Yep, sure do. We're just so cool and hip. Okay. Oh, my, when you say it, it doesn't... <laughs> it makes it even makes cooler, it right? Yeah. So, so uh, cool. So back to this really cool. Magby is literally just cool. he dabs the yep. whole podcast. Well, and you can't. <laughs> one of, one, AJ is making a, a vomiting face right now. So I do have many nicknames with the students. Uh, one is Bees. Uh, probably that's probably my favorite of the nicknames. But uh, uh, Swag Beast is one I get a lot. But a few students call me Dab Beast. Even oh though, no! Yeah, I never. Even no. though I never dab. The best part about being thirty now is you can take the things that the kids do are cool, and if you find them annoying. You can do them, yep. and they'll stop. they'll stop immediately. They'll stop immediately forever. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I just can't bring myself to dab. I can't do it. <laughs> I you still I would require... then have to define myself as someone who has dabbed before. Mm. I can't. You still require push-ups when people dab in your yeah. class. That's a good rule. It's a great rule. Okay, so our dor- kids are jacked because <laughs> <laughs> of all the dabbing they do. <laughs> yep. All right, so. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, Lost Tools of Learning. So, uh, again, this is mid-40s when she is writing this, and what she uh, starts out her article pointing to are problems of the education system. And she tries and pairs this with some of the the benefits that we've seen. So if you were to point to one benefit over the last, like, 200 years of education, like, are there any, like, really great things that come to mind? Up to 1948 or up till now? Yeah, up till 1948, yeah. Like, what what is education? Literacy. And that is the thing she points to. She says, look, we have taught all these these people to read, and that is incredible. Like, that is a great thing that we've done. It's awesome. Reading was... Yeah, less. Yeah. There was less reading. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Didn't have to so, say it fancy. Just, <laughs> just real straightforward. Yep. And so she says Ooh, that... We lost your mic there for a second. I don't know what's been going on, but we've been having some audio issues. We'll try to fix that before next podcast. I apologize to the audience, but it's been all three of our mics. I think it's a problem in the hardware. Can yeah, you hear me now? Somewhere. So we'll, we'll try to get that fixed. Sorry, audience, but... Is that good? Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. I'm, it, it's only momentary. That's weird. Um, so she ta- she talks about literacy and how it's great that there are many more people who can read, but the problem is that you have given people the ability to read, but not taught them how to deal with the information that they see. So uh, now uh, children can read. That is an improvement over the last couple hundred years. But what has that allowed? Advertising to come around. So think of the billboards that are around or television advertisements, or um, this wouldn't apply to reading, but radio advertisements. Uh, we have solved one problem, but created another problem of not knowing how to deal with that incoming information that we may not be used to. Uh, and with more people reading, there are more people who can write, there is more reporting that's being done. But the quality of that reporting is not necessarily great. There are uh, journalists who don't define their terms. There are journalists who don't have a clear grasp on what they're talking about. So you solve one problem. And some of them just swear. Like it's just yep. swears. Just <laughs> beginning to end. It's what kind of articles are you reading? I'm I'm kind of you guys don't read <laughs> the swear journal. It's my favorite. <laughs> so by solving one problem, um, there are other problems that have been created, and she ultimately gets to this point of um, saying that we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them the students how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. In this, we've referenced this in a few podcasts before about. So Graham talked about the trivium and the quadrivium. So there were these subjects, the quadrivium, these four subjects specifically that they were focused on, that they would use grammar, logic, rhetoric, mindset to to go through. But what they did was learn, they would learn about those subjects, but that would be it. They would learn how to do an algebra problem, and that that is the completion of the class. That is all that they got from that class. 
as opposed to what do I do when I get to a new math problem that I haven't seen before? Mm -hmm. They've not learned that, um, that itself. She says that's a problem. And I agree with that. Um, so she moves from there and uh, talks about the medieval concept that Graham was talking about just a while ago. He, uh, she talks about the trivium. She talks about the trivium as an approach to how, how to learn, not just three subjects in and of themselves. So there was a grammar class where you would learn Latin, but more broadly, grammar is the details of something. Logic is how they fit together. Rhetoric is how you express those things, that, that putting those three together. But she does a fun, an interesting thing. Instead of calling it grammar, logic, and rhetoric, she calls it grammar, dialectic, yeah. and rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start there for a little bit. So uh, I think one way of thinking of what happens as you move up through a subject, grammar, you understand the pieces of it, logic, how they fit together, um, then rhetoric, kind of the, the persuasion of something or like the significance of it. I think what she's pointing to is that grammar is where I learn about the pieces of something. Dialectic is where dialectic requires two people. Dialectic, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. is is my ability to persuade one other person. So, um, or a small group. So, like the three of us. Like I think what we're doing is a form of dialectic. So, a small group. And then rhetoric is a large Prove group it. of people. No, like, there it is. <laughs> um, and I, I'm curious what y'all think about that of of that second stage being called dialectic hmm. instead of the school of uh, instead of logic. Yeah, I, I don't know enough to know if they're completely interchangeable, but you definitely hear logic often referred to as dialectic i think that makes sense in that dialectic requires two i don't know if necessarily logic purely logic requires two because you right. can do logical syllogisms by yourself um uh, man is a rational animal aj is a man therefore aj is rational i didn't need to have a conversation with somebody else but there's but with dialectic there's that process of sort of uncovering or that process of testing that does require two. And usually it's one who's asking questions and the other who is answering them, and then they're sort of um, working together to sort of going back and forth and back and forth, get to the heart of the issue and sort of take the, the, the concept higher. Yep. Um, so Merriam-Webster says that dialectic is any systematic reasoning, exposition, or argument that juxtaposes opposed or contradictory ideas and usually seeks to resolve their conflict, a method of examining and discussing opposing ideas. So I don't, I don't necessarily know that dialectic as a word implies that there must be two people. I think that dialectic involves the interchange between two things, and often that involves two people, but can be done solo. And so in that way, it's very much like logic, right? Yes. Where logic is things speaking to each other, dialectic is very i think they're in that way they can be interchangeable sure. mm -hmm. it, it, it at least requires two ideas yeah. for there to be a dialectic right logic requires you know multiple premises to come to a conclusion same kind of thing whereas, whereas grammar is just facts it, it can, can be, be one, one thing. thing this butterfly is purple yep right and uh not, all butterflies are purple would be a thing that required another butterfly yeah. to right. prove that and this this might not bear on this but the um etymology of the word um it, originally in greek dialectic meant converse with and then moved on uh uh, there's an, it paired with another word that means the art of debate. Mm. So there is this history of it being uh, related to uh, at least another idea, but likely another person as well. Um, so I don't know. I, I find that interesting in that when we think of students in the school of logic, they are learning how to argue and they, <laughs> right. That, and that was sure a, point a few podcasts ago also. So dialectic is teaching them how to do that well, um, but they don't get formal logic until they come into the school of rhetoric at Veritas, correct? They typically take it the summer before their ninth grade year. Okay. Which could be a blind spot on our part. I'm just, part. I, I'm curious. I, I don't know. Like, if we call it the School of Logic, should, I don't know. Does it require them to have gone through eighth grade to be ready for the class that you teach? Yeah, it kind of does. It's, it means we should make them fight, is what it means. <laughs> yep. It's fairly complex. I, I think that, it, I think the blind spot is that logic should be interspersed throughout all of our teaching. And yes. All teachers should have a firm grasp of fallacies, logic, syllogisms, all of these things. And so we can bring them up when we're talking about other stuff. And so it's not just a separate topic where they learn it, they learn the esoterics, and then they leave it alone. Because that's kind of what's happening is when do you see a syllogism again? But I, I bring it up when I'm writing and saying, like, here's how science writing works. We have two pieces of evidence and then a commentary sentence. And what that is, is two premises and a conclusion, right? It's the way that we reason. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's a big revelation for kids usually is that we write in syllogisms. Mm. That's really cool. That kind of makes me want to take your logic class. Um, so 
the way that Dorothy Sayers is talking about these three different stages of how to think about. So again, she is only talking about subjects right now. She hasn't gotten to the um, trivium of the student yet, but she mm-hmm. will get there later. Uh, talks about so grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. Uh, and under dialectic is both logic and disputation. So she defines dialectic as being kind of the I need to be right with my logic and be able to dispute. Oh, okay. So so she defines it that way. Uh, our question before is whether mm-hmm. the word dialectic actually means that, um, but for her purposes, that's how she defines it. Um, and then the the ultimate end of grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. Do you want to guess what comes at the very end of that? What comes at the very end for all of our seniors? Thesis. Thesis. They burn all their notes. Burn all their notes and then um, tear up their uniforms. But uh, after Latin four, I think they have a they've got a Julius Caesar. Uh, bonfire tradition that they've started really? where they take um, Caesar's Gallic War and they burn it. And um, <laughs> Is it that miserable to go through? It's, apparently. I, I, apparently, I, th- I think at the end of it, they're just so, like, they want to stab Caesar by the end of it. <laughs> so, um, but it, It's really simple wording, apparently, which is why it's good to translate. Mm-hmm. So it's all, we went there and did this thing and <laughs> killed 9,000 soldiers, and Caesar was great and wise. <laughs> and so it's like these shots towards Caesar being awesome yeah. and then simple numbers, mm-hmm. and it, like I can see why they hate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we at Veritas, the last thing that they do is a senior thesis. 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 So, and that is the ultimate end of all three of these. And that's what she says? Yeah. Let me, she has a quote on th- thesis at the end of his course um, so this is uh, from the middle ages a student at the end of his course he was required to compose a thesis upon some theme set by his masters or chosen by himself and afterwards to defend his thesis against the criticism of the faculty by this time he would have learned or woe betide him not merely to (laughs) write an essay on paper but to speak audibly and intelligibly from a platform and use his wits quickly when heckled there would also be questions cogent and shrewd from those who had already run the gauntlet of debate. That's the description of thesis, which I think really well describes what we do here. Mm-hmm. That's that's our program, that's like especially the heckling. Do we heckle them? Yeah, I don't do know. Do you do all the? Li- I don't think the listeners know about our program. So, oh, sorry. The, I mean, AJ, there's people who You're listen right. that aren't from Veritas. So we here at Veritas, our senior thesis is the students write a 12 page speech. 10 to 12, yeah. 10 to 12 page speech that they then memorize and deliver from stage in a 20-minute speech, and then they're allowed to have a page of notes that they can go back and refer to, and then they defend it for another 20 minutes against a panel of one person they know that is their advisor, my friend Graham Donaldson over here, and then two people they don't know. We try to get a layman and an expert if we can, but sometimes, you know, volunteers are scarce. And it's a pretty big... It's a pretty big deal. And it's a big affair. Hey, and it's if you want to well be attended. a thesis panelist, <laughs> email go. us at classicalstuff@veritasacademy.net, and we'll put you on that panel. You will be impressed at the elocution of our students. And it really um, is impressive. It's quite impressive. Twenty-minute memorized speech is a, is a pretty big is a pretty impressive thing. I don't know if I had the horsepower to do it at seventeen, um, but our kids do it every single graduate. And so um, that's the that's the advanced thesis. Mm-hmm. We also have a, another thesis that mm-hmm. isn't done for the public as much, but there's one where it's less memory, but still the same, uh, research requirements, mm-hmm. but anyway, same but paper. yeah, so we, I guess, and like with many, many classical schools who read Dorothy Sayers article and decided to make their, a school around it. That's, I guess why a lot of the, them for, for these schools, the capstone is the senior thesis. thesis. Cause it brings, it, it brings everything together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's being a part of grading the theses this year has been really great because you see that they are combining, they take a very complicated topic. They, they, tell you what the grammar is they they give you some kind of logical argument in there and then the ones that are successful get to that point of rhetoric of like actually persuading me that yeah the way i thought about this was wrong and i should point out that all of the the thesis is a deliberative discourse we should be doing something um we should change something as opposed to some uh, where they're just they're telling you about a new topic let me i'm here to tell you about about the hyperloop, or I'm here yeah, it's to tell not, you, it's not an informative practice. So it's a deliberative discourse. So they are actually trying; they have a proposal. They are con- trying yeah. to convince us to do something, um, and it's something that they can actually research. So it's less of an opinion. We should not have cell phones, but it, it needs to be a proposal that they make. Yeah, yeah. So that's enough on our yeah. thesis. Anyway, <laughs> we get, we get really, really, really stoked about that. So all that to say, there is this historical. Uh, justification for having a thesis. It was a part of the medieval curriculum as well, and it's a practice that that we use, uh, I think, to great effect. Uh, you all often talk about how when students come off of the stage from giving their thesis, like they stand taller. And I've gotten, I can't tell you the amount of texts I've gotten from students that are like, wow, I now have to write a 10-page paper in college, and I'm ready for it. I'm really glad I took 
thesis. Yeah. We don't hear that while they're actually making their <laughs> That's thesis. True. We that all the works. all the happiness comes after they're finished. Mm-hmm. But we do get it. There's it's a pretty well reviewed and then program they, afterwards. They stride through the campus like new gods. <laughs> Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's yep, true. That's it. That is an accurate statement. I was sorry. That just made me think. I'm I'm going to try and reference the leisure essay every episode I can from now on. <laughs> that that we talked about how work hard work does not make a thing good. Like the hard work is not necessarily good in and of itself. When you talk about papers being easy to write, they can be good papers whether they are written, whether they t- spend a hundred hours on them or two hours if you train them more. And the student tends to think that if they spend ten, 10 hours on a paragraph, it's better than the paragraph they wrote in 20 minutes. It's, when not not, it's not true at all. But in their hearts, they want that 10 hours to mean something. Yeah. But that, the thing that 10 hours can mean was just 10 hours of frustration. Yeah. And um, 10 hours meaning a really bad... Yeah. It's going to be like, oh, I worked for 20 hours on this and got a 70. And I'm like, you, you still deserve a 70. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, you're not grading them on the amount of time that they right. spent on something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, Dorothy Sayers has given us this introduction. She's talked about all these problems in modern society. She's talked about how there's this really cool thing done in the medieval ages about the the trivium and, and thesis and all of that. And so she has this discussion then of, well, can we go back to the way it was? And she has this kind of funny distinction between, can we literally go back to the Middle Ages? And she says no, in case you were curious of her answer on that one. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Uh, but then it would, her, it would be great if she segued into... <laughs> And time yes, travel. because I've invented a time machine. <laughs> Very and just big reveal. Never seen again. The, lo- the cool. lost tools of what? Lost tools of education yeah. is a time machine. We can just go back and talk to Plato. It's awesome. That's our lost tool. That would be tool. incredible. I wish. Uh, so then she, she uses the can we go back to it in the second sense of can we take practices from the medieval ages and, um, and use them today? And her answer to that is, of course we can. I mean, that's um, we can take practices from anywhere and, and implement them in our lives. It's kind of the point. So that's when she moves on from there to talk about what it would look or what grammar logic rhetoric could look like for us today. So at this point, she moves into the trivium of the person. And so instead of, like I said, for Veritas, we split up our grades between grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Uh, She talks about these three different stages that a person goes through, and they're not like really glamorous titles for a person. So the um, young students, she calls poll parrots, P-O-L-L dash parrot. <laughs> the the her middle term is the pert and then the poetic so a a student goes from being a pole parrot to a pert to a poetic it sounds like she did a lot of work to make the alliteration alliteration happen. work yeah it's exactly it's a very british way of talking about a child yeah so uh so pole parrot uh the way that it sounds is that a, a pole parrot is a trained parrot so literally parrots back to you what you give to them so aj you were using this example before that uh, grammar school kids love to memorize stuff and then give you that information. So their brains are sponges, so give them lots of information for them to absorb and and use. I remember in first grade, I knew the exact number of people who died on the Titanic. I was obsessed with the Titanic. I knew all the facts. I knew the date. I knew the name of, like, the hierarchy of the captain and the first mates and all that. I just loved... Kids, you know, kids find these things that they just get obsessed over, and then they memorize things. There's like a dino- dinosaur phase that kids go through. Did I, you watch I had a the Titanic, Titanic movie? I did <laughs> later on, and I didn't really care for it because I was like, they're not talking about the, how cool the boat is. I, <laughs> I would like more statistics, please. <laughs> exactly. And then no one likes that kid. Um, we like you, um, You're great. Thank you. Um, but, you know, like I think kids just go through this where they just get this thing that they get obsessed with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that and that defines very well that that, that early stage, stage. yeah, that mm-hmm. pole parrot stage. So then the grammar stage, gram, and she'll make that connection later. But yes, what she'll say that the pole parrot is for the grammar stage. This middle stage is called the pert. Is that a word that you've ever used in your life before? With a U or an E? P E R T. Lively or cheeky? Yeah, uh, which was not a helpful definition for me. Uh, cheeky is impudent or irreverent. Like yeah. Um, Typically in an endearing or an amusing way, which is just such, such a good word. Isn't that such a good word? So Merriam-Webster says saucily free and forward, <laughs> flippantly cocky and assured. But this is not explain. Is this not a seventh grade boy in yes. your mind? Yes, yeah, for sure. the word for it. It's, they're nailing it. Yeah. Uh, and so that's... <laughs> that, that boy is so saucy, saucy free and forward. What a little pert. <laughs> I'm just glad that there's a word for that. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was cool. And then pert will line up with dialectic in that um, they're um, irreverent in that they disagree. Like... Uh, giving the argument of because I say so will not work for someone in this dialectic stage because they are irreverent and they want to reject authority. And so the logic must be better for the parent to appeal to a student in that age. So then the final age uh, is the poetic age, which 
like we've been talking about before, uh, uh, desires for expression, has all of these feelings that they just want to like get out into the world. Uh, poetic is probably describing it in and the form. That's where we form. get the teen angst poetry. Teen angst poetry is exactly right. From here. Um, or they love... I used to write that stuff. Did you really? Oh, man. Can we I do can, a reading? Uh, I, can, I remember one I wrote, and it was this heartfelt diatribe about why everyone else was a zombie mm. and not a way and I was and I wrote Wake it Wake up sheeple Exactly it was it was <laughs> so much that and I wrote it and then as I I finished it and then I read over it and I was like this is the worst thing I've ever written and it's horrible and and it, that that was like my last teen angst poem awesome. I, from then on I was like I'm never again That's good um, please bring some of those to read on this podcast. That would be exquisite. I think I deleted it. <laughs> you should not. I know it's so sad. So uh, here on out, she goes into a very detailed explanation of what a uh, uh, grammar stage would look like, what a logic stage would look like, and a rhetoric stage would look like. I'm not going to go through each of these because straight up for grammar, she goes subject by subject. So Latin should be this way. English should be this way. Geography, science, uh, math should be this way. The one the most interesting part of this is that she says that Latin ought to be taught uh, at this grammar stage. Everyone, everyone should learn Latin. She has this little caveat where she says Russian is okay, which I thought, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's okay. Uh, but Latin is, is the thing to be taught. Um, so I know that our school does not require Latin. Uh, we, we also, um, we have... Um, don't we require Latin? I thought it was one, well, one uh, year. One year is required, but you don't have to take Latin for forever. So right. she would say that the only language should be Latin. Um, as opposed to just one year of it. Um, I don't know if you all had strong opinions on um, Latin, especially as English teachers. like um, Two English teachers that don't know Latin. Yeah. How much do you love Latin? Um, I, I wish. I'm kicking myself for not knowing it. Yeah. It would mean that I could read a lot of the books in their original. I could read yes. a lot of the old scholarship. I w also wish I knew ancient Greek so I could read the Homeric epics in their original. I, I wish I knew a lot of languages beyond the French that I took. I took beginning French three times. I just, yeah, whenever I hear those sorts of things, is it, be, is it the Latin itself or is it just the, the fact that you're going through a language? Because that, that sort of has been something that our school has come down and said, well, learning a language is important. So you can do Latin or you can do Spanish because that's very practical. And then we also have um, American Sign Language. Yeah. So all subjects are taught for the purpose of teaching grammar, logic, rhetoric. Yeah. So... Let, uh, let us begin then with grammar. This in practice means the grammar of some language in particular. I mean, that's what the word grammar means in more colloquial sense, mm -hmm. um, like learning a language. And it must be an inflected language. The grammatical structure, um, uh, she has this aside about um, inflected languages, which is really funny. She has very strong opinions on languages. Um, well, I know the that best grounding for education is the Latin grammar. I say this not because Latin is traditional and medieval, but simply because even a rudiment, rudimentary knowledge of Latin cuts down the labor and pains of learning almost any other subject by at least 50%. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of think... I love that line. <laughs> just from the little Latin that I know, I think that probably bears itself out. Just but a also, random statistic. I'm going to throw least. a number out. It's going to be at least 50%. <laughs> but the so inflective funny. language, I think, also helps with logic. When you have the verb at the end of yep. a sentence, sure. yeah. that's a different way of thinking than English, where, the, where you have the words in the order that we have them. So in that way, uh, when, you have, when you have inflective languages and you have the language that you speak, it's just like entering into a different headspace yes. of, 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 of thinking and forming. And uh, I think that helps with like style of writing mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Uh, her, the next paragraph starts, those whose pedantic preference for a living language persuades them to deprive their pupils of all these advantages of, of learning Latin might substitute Russian. Uh, and then later, uh, there is there is something to be said for classical Greek, but my own choice is Latin. So anyway, she loves Latin. I, it's just a really funny. It, it, this is a delightful essay to read. <laughs> I, I, might, I might throw out there. Okay, so she goes through... Uh, any other thoughts on Latin? Is it no okay. thoughts on Latin? Cool. So all these uh, just that I wish I had it goes through Me these too. individual elements of um, different subjects of what should be taught in the grammar stage. Then comes to this question that, that we referenced earlier: When do you move from grammar to logic? And um, this is a frustrating answer. Generally speaking, the answer of when they should move it on is so soon as the uh, as the pupil shows himself disposed to pertness and interminable argument. So as soon when they start when they get right. obnoxious, when they yeah, get obnoxious when... is when you start teaching them logic. <laughs> which I, I like that answer a lot. Of like as soon as they are showing these signs of wanting to move in this direction, they are plucked from the, <laughs> the kindergarten room and put moved into, into the, the higher grade. padded cell of fifth grade. <laughs> but yeah. hand some logic problems and say figure it out. 
<laughs> Wait, what? Please do that. I'm I'm just trying to imagine you teaching your logic class to like a group of sixth and seventh graders. Would would that terrify their parents if they were to learn formal logic that early, or would it just not land? I mean, it depends on the kid, right? Yeah, sure. and Which I would need more. I would need more time. Yeah, I think if I was going to teach it correctly, we sort of do a crash course as, as it is, and yeah. So. The move from grammar to dialectic, which is what she calls it here, is whenever the student is ready for it. And again, the the way Veritas does it is that generally people will move to that age, um, you know, fourth or fifth grade. That's that's kind of how we have the school split up. That is not not every student will be at that at that pace, um, but many students many students will, and many students are ready for that. And even fifth grade is different from eighth grade in terms of how much logic there is in it. So there's still a development going on in them. Um, okay, so then. Dorothy Sayers goes through all these different uh, ways that dialectic can be taught through uh, different subjects. Um, and just, she does, I don't think she likes students that are at this age. Um, she has this paragraph at the end. I guess she, well, she is critical of the students and also of teachers. So she's just delightful all around. So it will doubtless be objected that to encourage young persons at the pert age to browbeat, correct, and argue with their elders will render them perfectly intolerable. My answer is that children of that age are intolerable anyhow, <laughs> and that their ar natural argumentativeness may uh, just as well be um, put to good purpose as allowed to run away into the sands. It may indeed be rather less obtrusive at home if it is disciplined in school. That's a I think that's a good point. And anyhow, elders who have abandoned the wholesome principle that children should be seen and not heard have no one else to blame but themselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like the best example of the teacher of the School of Logic age is the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Hmm. Because there's a scene when... In the uncle? Uh, yeah, the un no, not the uncle, not the crazy uncle that makes the rings, but the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So when Lucy comes back and she says that she's seen Narnia... Um, Susan and Peter, who I think are like logic age, um, go and talk to the professor and they basically have this thing where they say, we think Lucy's lying to us. And the professor goes through a logical argument and he says, all right, uh, Lucy's either lying to you, she's a crazy person, or she's telling you the truth. And he sort of logically walks them through these questions and Isn't that Lewis's famous trilemma about... And it's a famous trilemma about Jesus, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I, Jesus claimed to be God, and either he was lying, he was nuts, or he was actually God. Yeah, so right. if we eliminate the other two, then... Same thing with, with Lucy. And so you've got the sort of the loving, patient professor who's using logic to, um, to put these kids, not in their place, but to sort of help them make this, make this decision about what to do with their sister. So I always think of, of, of Lewis's... Um, professor as this um as the best teacher of logic he he based him off somebody in his own life named professor kirk that he talks about in his own biography who seems like a delightful old uh kooky man a kooky scott um who uh, taught him basically logic when he was uh when he was that age which is why we need to teach logic younger i don't know i don't know if i actually think well that. it's also why they the original type of the schooling was a one-on-one -on -one tutorship yes, tutor. relationship yep. and that's what so when when I read what she's describing, it's so individualized to the student, it sounds more like a parent uh, raising their child is what, mm -hmm. and this is often used in, in homeschooling circles as well. So for what that, for what that's worth. Uh, so wait, do you think that you would, if you were, if you had the funds or the ability to do it, you would organize a school where in grammar stage, they were all in a class together, but then in logic stage, they went off in like maybe groups of three with one instructor and then they were in those groups all the way up to rhetoric stage, and they came back to being in groups again. Or, I don't know, There's just there seems to be like all sorts of different ways that we could structure and organize this right. if we actually took these stages as literally as or literally seriously. Or seriously. Um, now, of course, there's, there's constraints that we have, like budget and Cost, people sure. and that kind of thing. Yeah, but. I think that's the main issue. Ideally, if you're wealthy enough, you can get a, a tutor for your kid that is really well qualified but and a picture of the ideal type and then have them teach your kid. But isn't, so the rhetoric stage requires many other people. Like what you all do with your Harkness discussions is what makes in, uh, um, biology recent, uh, um, Mrs. Moore just led a discussion on, um, I forget what it was, but it was a Harkness in her class as well. It's not just English that does this, just so I say that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that is the rhetoric stage of having an idea, expressing that idea and bringing people over to your side. Like, 
I don't know. I think the rhetoric stage requires other people. But those other people don't necessarily have to be within the educational. Yeah, they don't have to be in school, right? Ideally, that kid would be entering into whatever business his family did, and then he would be having to convince customers. He'd have to be coming up with new products. He'd have to be doing whatever was the practice of actual rhetoric in his sphere of the real world, world, right? And which is much higher stakes and makes him more interested in the practice rather than being low stakes other than grades. Yeah. I like that a lot, and we'll we'll get to age in a second because she does talk about that of kind of where these these ranges will occur. But so we were just in logic, and so we enter into logic when the student starts getting frustrating, and then you teach them how to be frustrating well, and then toward the end of the stage, the people will probably be beginning to discover for themselves that their knowledge and experience are insufficient, and that their well and that their trained intelligences need a great deal more material to chew upon, and that. Tell that to an eighth grader. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I will say for my, um, I've been very incre- impressed with my eighth grade discipleship class in that, um, you know, they'll have the funny jokes and they'll just be kind of goofy at first. But but like there are moments where these students are like really grappling with um, an issue and they're like, I don't I have don't a way know. to answer. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have no idea how to even approach this question. And that's where I feel like I can be helpful to them. I'm not very helpful on knowing memes or stuff like that. But I guess that's not why I'm, I'm here in the first place. Uh, so that is the bridge between logic and rhetoric, uh, the realization of like the insufficiency, um, that there's more outside of themselves that they need to go out and, and learn, um, learn more. So each of the grammar and logic sections are a page long of, of Dorothy Sayers going like subject by subject. Here's what you should teach in grammar. So grammar is the longest. Logic is a little bit shorter. Rhetoric is one paragraph be- because it is difficult to map out any general syllabus for the study of rhetoric. A certain freedom is demanded. And literature appreciation should, uh, should be, again, allowed to take the lead over destructive criticism. And this is from a previous podcast of the need for analysis and synthesis. Uh, that analysis will tear down and synthesis is kind of the acceptance and, and um, mm-hmm. affirmation of something. Rhetoric should be the enjoyment of these subjects. It should be more synthesis than it is analysis, which is what the, the dialectics uh, focused on. And this is how school used to be, that you had grammar and logic. And then this is so when you go back and you read about these people in the 19th century or whatnot, going to Harvard at 16 or going to college when they're 15 to go do science. I think in our modern minds, we think, well, they must have just been some like super geniuses. Yeah. But in reality, by the time they were done logic, um, and they got a little bit of rhetoric, they could sort of discover something that they enjoyed and loved yes. for the thing itself. Yes. And they could say, I know enough about these other subjects, but I'm going to dedicate my life to biology and then go off and do, and then, and then sort of go into the rhetoric of biology or go off and become a poet and go into the rhetoric of poetry. Whereas in our modern world, we have, we want you to be as like broad or as, as, um, as specialized in everything as you can. Um, where, so, yeah, where we, we, we don't push... The, we, we, we think that if we push them to specialization too early, yeah. um, they haven't had some sort of, like, sense of self-discovery. Um, they don't know what they... You know, a 15, 15-year-old doesn't know what he wants. Mm. But, um, but I don't know if that's a good thing on our part or a blind spot on our part. So you... Uh, you... I don't know how you do this every time, but literally her next paragraph is describing what you're describing. So her question is, is the trivium... I'm classically educated, Thomas. <laughs> You've never read this article before. Oh, and you aren't classically I'm educated. I'm also not classically <laughs> educated. educated. <laughs> so the next paragraph is... I'll come back to whatever. We're, we jump around all the time. Anyway, is the trivium then a sufficient education for life? Properly taught, I believe that it, it should be. Uh, at the end of the dialectic, the children will probably seem to be far behind their fellow students brought up in an old-fashioned modern... Up, she does call it old-fashioned modern methods. So if you, so I think what you're getting at is like if you compare students at the end of the dialectic school, it looks like these modern educated students know a lot more. But the thing is, they've been taught lots of subjects, but they haven't been taught how to learn. Yeah. And so if you if you take that time frame out longer, you'll again. Why do I keep waving my arms around like the podcast listeners can hear? Um, uh, if you take that time frame out further, the classically educated student will be able to adapt better than the modern educated student. That is her argument. And I think we hear that bear itself out from just reports from the academics, like reports when from they go professors. To when they go to college, yeah. you have professors. Um, didn't Dershowitz write a book uh, recently You called... are so much better educated than me. Um, I have no idea. Who's Dershowitz? Seriously. Uh, what's his name? Just let me... I'm so upset right now. I'm flipping through my, uh, my note yeah, cards Yeah, I was reading uh, no, no, I, Kierkegaard I, the other day. And... Thomas, of anybody who I would have thought that you would have read this because you are it? a much more well... Thomas, have you read any Kierkegaard? Read person. Yeah, I have. 
See, exactly. You've Sorry. Kierkegaard. William Dershowitz. Does that name sound familiar? No. no. Teaches at Yale. Wrote a Still book no. Called the neoliberal arts. Nope. Oh. <laughs> well, he was. He's been like complaining or talking about that people are coming to school and they're taking my class. They're taking arts classes not because they want to learn the thing themselves, but because they want to get like a great internship and yeah. go off and become, you know, uh, seated in the halls of power. Yeah. Um, Dershowitz had this to say from his book. <laughs> the Donaldson arts. brought his Isn't he the coolest his man. His thing of his commonplace so, book, which we'll talk about probably in another episode. A college, oh, sorry, as college is increasingly understood in terms of jobs and careers, and jobs and careers increasingly means business, especially entrepreneurship, students have developed a parallel curriculum for themselves, a parallel college where they can get the skills they think they really need. Those extracurriculars that students are deserting the classroom for are less and less quote, recreational and more and more oriented towards future employment, mm. entrepreneurial endeavors, nonprofit ventures, volunteerism. The big thing now on campuses or rather off them is internships mm. and the sort of this idea that um, um, it's less like the students are not coming because they want to learn the thing themselves. It's 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 very much pragmatism. If I can go and, and do something that makes me millions of dollars, why would I go to college? And then we even see this bearing itself out in the startup world. Like Peter Thiel has his, here's, if you, pay can, you not to go to college. I will pay you not to go to college if you have a cool idea for a business. And that's also kind of the like sub um, tone in like the social network, the, the movie about Facebook. Yeah. Here's a guy who's going to Harvard and basically Harvard can't give him anything that he can't, he can sort of supersede and make his own better version of of Harvard and, and the things that Harvard can give him by by making his own company. And so, I mean, we really do have this this hollowing out of, I would say, like the secular liberal arts. Mm-hmm. That's that's we we've sort of had this mirroring of the liberal arts tied to some sort of sense of of like Western secularism, liberalism, um, and they've been able to sort of go hand in hand for a while. But now, something's had like they they can't sort of go off together forever something had to win and the thing that's winning is just sort of like power pragmatism money yeah yeah and it, um and I, I the classical education is trying to like say response. this is like you need to like this thing for the thing itself like yeah. it is an end in and of itself because I, I do wonder if the problem on that one is uh students who are going off to college or parents who are sending their students off to college want a school that will um train them vocationally to go and be successful uh I don't know. Because then the college adapts to what the student wants. I just think that that is a function of a free market, that that mm-hmm. college is going to do what the the, uh, the audience wants, mm-hmm. whether, it's, it, whether it's right or wrong. Isn't that a symptom of several generations of sure, faulty sure, sure. Yeah. learning? Like yeah. as far if the parents, you know, they want the best for their kids, and if their vision of what the best for their kids is, is good job, lots of money, that's what they're going to ask at colleges, and that's what colleges would give. That's um, And uh, so it's the parents who need a sort of a re-education to say, look, Money does not make a good life. Yeah. We have numerous examples of that. Which is why there should be a, a discomfort to parents and kids at a school that is setting itself up to say it's not about that. Mm. Now, our students go off and they are successful in college, but almost as like a byproduct yes. of what we're doing as opposed to the prime product. At least that's our intention. At least that's our intention. That success yeah. would be a byproduct not rather than the but the thing we focus thing on. Have, AJ, have you read uh, Closing of the American Mind? Not yet. Harold Bloom, because um, he gives that exact same argument that you're giving, but it's really funny because he's talking about uh, the um, uh, he's talking about boomers, um, baby boomers, and um, uh, like their their only values are safety and security. So, and then he has this part at the end where he's like, I can't even imagine what their children will be like, and that that's kind of we're living in that. Yeah. that it's um, one set of values, and then we're like the the first derivative off of those values of even even lower than that. Uh, it's a very good book. Um, okay, so Lost Rules of Learning, Dorothy Sayers. She has this part where she talks about the ages that people should be in for these different um, different um, levels. So for grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. And so her proposal is that the first category of people should study grammar from about 9 until 11. Dialectic from 12 till 14. And then his last two school years would then be devoted to rhetoric and then that would mean at 16, the student is done with school. Now, you, I don't know much about this. That doesn't, doesn't school go until 18? Like, that, that seems like and it starts at five. Yeah. So, so it starts later and ends earlier with the goal, AJ, of what you exactly just said, that at 16, 
he would go into the real world. Oh, uh, a choice, either into um, uh, a trade or to university. Higher ed. Yeah, and if they did higher ed, then they would study. Be the doing w- the rhetoric of that thing. They would be doing the, so they would do quadrivium after that mm. for 17, 18, and mm. then go off to university. But if you're uh, if you're not going into academia, you study the trivium for uh, up until 16 and then go and do a trade. Um, I don't know if you all had thoughts on that. Um, I I personally love the idea of, like, it is a, it is a responsibility that is given to them it then actually matters if they've learned rhetoric because they're going into um, the world. They're well, that's been a common discussion in the English department is how to give the only real stakes that they have are grades. Yeah. And so when they turn in a paper to us, they know that the only person who is ever going to read it is probably me. And the only backlash they're going to get is maybe a bad grade and some red marks on their paper, and then they will throw it into the... You know, into a, yeah, oblivion forever. It'll it'll disappear. It's a, it's a nothing that they're writing, and I think that shows itself in the writing that we receive. But if we were to take these and at the end of the year they're going to write an essay that gets published, no matter the quality, in a literary journal that's going to go out to the entire community, I think we'd get better, much better writing. <laughs> and so the discussion of how to bring actual real stakes right. into the conversation is incredibly pertinent. Yeah, I think I, I do think y'all do that with discussion in that. Um, I guess that's still a grade that you're giving to them. But there's also the respect of their peers that if they give a, a, uh, a comment that's not actually related to the conversation, their peers will think less of them, and there's kind of a social proof in that. This is why often our thesis is the best thing they write in yeah. high school. Not because it's the last thing, but it's, it's because it's a public thing. Yeah. So, Tom, I and like... there's some kids who are like, wait, so if I do one version, I won't have to... T- like, no one hears it, right? And they, I mean, that's... Some kids ask us, no one hears it, and we say, well, people are going to hear this thing. Yeah. Right. Um, so I often think about this because in many ways, a class like our classical school is trying to fit into a, a social paradigm that we weren't completely designed for. Mm. The social paradigm of like education for vocation to enter the marketplace that that has this um, the, this intellectual marketplace that we have. People, it's harder and harder for people to go off and make a living being a bus driver or working in a factory. People are going off and they're having to do sort of white collar intellectual jobs. Um, and so, but I often like thinking about, okay, if the, our way of life ended, like the apocalypse happens Mm -hmm. or something happens and then Veritas endures and this, for whatever reason, this little pocket of Texas, uh, continues to exist. What would we jettison as things that we were doing to be able to integrate our kids into the greater world out there? What would we jettison? What would we keep? if the greater world out there was gone or very, very different than what we have now. Do you know what I mean? Like this idea of starting at nine and ending at 16, I feel like we can, I really think that a lot of what we can, when we need, what we can get students to, to understand in terms of grammar, logic, and rhetoric can happen in nine to 16, but why don't we do it right now? Well, because schools are set up where kids are going five days a week, starting at five, because, both parents are working or whatever. And that's sort of the social paradigm that we're living in. But back in the day, if the social paradigm was um, either one parent was working or both parents worked at home on some sort of subservient or some sort of subsistence life, like on a farm or a homestead or whatever, um, then all of a sudden, wait, having my child at home is more valuable. So I only want him to be at school at a very specific, uh, the only, the perfect amount of time that he needs to go. Whereas now it's get my kid out of my house as soon as you can. Because it's all of these balls are in the air and I need to be at work from nine to five and my wife needs to be at work from nine to five and we need our five year old to go somewhere. So I'm just thinking like what would we what would we if we could completely craft an education model that um, that maybe this is dumb exercise that didn't have to fit into the, the, the world around it. What would be like the purest way of doing it? But isn't that. I know it's like maybe not practice. It's like sort of a silly exercise. Well, it's but. not just that it's silly. It's that you're. Remo- it feels like you're removing an integral part of education. That how are we fitting into the world mm. around us? Right? Isn't education to to train a man how to live well in the world? And so but the world if, is a big consideration. I know, but what if a lot of the world, our students, don't if they go through classical education when they get into the world, a lot of their conclusions are I don't want to be part of this because of some of the the human um, indignities that you have to suffer in the modern world, like like um, Twitter, 
<laughs> sure. No, I'm, that's what I think you know what you're what talking mean? about. Like, like, so um, I'm thinking social media, but I'm also thinking like certain careers that a person yeah. should not pursue that would not be. But isn't that like, like we've like, had this question before? Like, are there are there jobs that Christians nowadays cannot, in good conscience, do anymore? Assassin. Just, yes, <laughs> but I I think. You know, if a kid comes out and says, I'm simply going to withdraw from the world because it's hard, we've done something. Mm. We haven't we haven't no, given them a good not, picture of the not ideal. Not because type. it's hard, but because it's our... If, if, a, if a Christian person cannot live conscientiously in the world, I can see withdrawing from it. But if you can live responsibly, make a change, and do things to improve the world around you, I think that's something we're called to do, right? You, you will always have the poor with you. And so if we withdraw and ignore the poor, even the monks who withdraw, right? They're, one of the main thing they, things they do is charity. So mm-hmm. they're not abandoning the world. They're just working in it in a different way. I guess I'm thinking more in, in regards of um, every student that goes through a classical, that goes through our school, has to grapple with, and I think every human has to grapple with, especially as Christians, do I go off and do the game that everybody else is playing, the quest of wealth and power, the, the game of, of, of what the world tells me I need to do versus a complete change to that. And so, you know, you, you give up your life and live, and live your life for God. It's, it's, um, I know I just had a friend recently and he was asked to give a sermon on a psalm and he chose a psalm that had to do with, uh, I, shoot, I, I can't, I, don't remember the psalm but one thing that he said probably in, god in his, or something in his lead up to the sermon was my whole life people told me that um sort of um making money was an important part of life and that would that was a lie that they were going to cheer me on that quest all the way up into my grave and then he said and then but then as i became a christian deeper in my faith i realized that like we're called to something different so um i feel like if you were a parent you yourself have felt that tension in your own life and you, your children are also feeling that tension. Um, and how do you, um, what, what, what is our responsibility as a school, uh, in, in nurturing that, that problem or talking about that problem? I think public schools or vocational schools or schools that are just like, we want to get you to the best college you can get. They've got their marching orders get this kid right. the best grades they can get, the best education they can get, and off you go and go on the mission and, you know, try to get into the best internship kind of thing that you can get. It reinforces the paradigm. Yeah. Whereas what Dorothy Sayers is talking about and um, is that we're questioning the paradigm because of this older paradigm. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a real tension that our students feel. And I, and I think they should. Yeah. I think that one because of... Because it is a tension. The, the question of of how the Christian person or how the person in general should interact with wealth is not a new one. Like that is not a symptom of our modern world. That is a question that has been asked a thousand times and has been commented on a thousand times. We, we bring up the question and say in the rhetoric stage, how should the person interact with wealth? And we do that when we talk about great expectations, right? Mm -hmm. That's why Mm -hmm. that book is in senior years to talk about, Wealth. Anyway, where we we're going to need to sure, stop sure. wrapping up soon. Uh, over uh, no, where are we talk at? Talk forever. Um, and by the way, is this like trivium part two, kind of? So it is in the sense of um, how did we get the trivium today? So Graham's discussion was what is the trivium, and then this discussion here is why why does Veritas have the trivium? Oh god, okay. a piece of that answer mm. is Dorothy Sayers' article. So it was so popular in the 1950s that. Graham made this joke at the beginning, but launched many classical schools from there. So that's kind of where right. we're going with it. Got it. It is related. Uh, probably, I mean, there will, there will be very much overlap to it, um, but distinct, hopefully. Yeah. And if not, you got to hear us ramble about other things, too. Yep. Um, okay. So we had gotten through the ages uh, of the students here, and then she moves into the very end of her article, which is where we are. Um I think this is an interesting idea. We'll probably we'll do this idea, and then I'll read the last two paragraphs just because they're good. But I will add that it is highly important that every teacher should, for his or her, for his or her own sake, be qualified and required to teach in all three parts of the trivium. Otherwise, masters of dialectic, especially, might find their minds hardening into a permanent adolescence. For this reason, teachers in preparatory schools should also take rhetoric class in the public schools to which they are attached. Um, uh, and when British people talk about public school. They're talking about private schools. Mm-hmm. That's just, anyway. So she's talking about a private school. Um, 
or if they are not so attached, then by arrangement in other schools in the same neighborhood. Alternatively, a few preliminary classes in rhetoric might be taken in preparatory school uh, from the age of 13 onwards. So what she says is that someone in rhetoric should teach in dialectic and in the grammar school, which as a university model school, we have more of that, but especially among the logic and rhetoric school, but less so with the school of grammar. Mm -hmm. That's just an observation. I don't know um, if there's anything else to it. But I, I think it's an interesting idea of requiring, because uh, we are, yes, in the rhetoric stage, but when I'm approaching a new subject, I still need to learn the grammar, learn the logic, then learn the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And that, that cycle never goes away. Hmm. I'm so. terrified that they'll ask me to teach logic one year. I mean, teach logic stage, like sixth grade. Really? Be like, hey, guess what? No more 10th grade. You're teaching sixth grade. <laughs> oh, they're great. It's so many fart jokes. It's just the best. <laughs> really, they're the funniest. I used yeah. to teach seventh and eighth grade drama, and the, some of the stuff they say is so wonderful. And, <laughs> like, it's quote book stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying my eighth grade class right yeah. now. They're a really good group. They're, they're a great group of kids. Yeah. So then she moves yeah, and to the very end, she, again, had started this essay talking about the problems of the modern day and why we need classical education as a, a solution to those problems. Uh, she says that the only reason that we have not totally fallen into manipulation is we have this great intellectual history behind us, but if we do not refer back to that great intellectual history, we will lose it. And that's the the fear that she has. Um, so she, these are the last two paragraphs. But that's, one, I feel like that's what we live in live in now i mean like what hasn't gotten better in the last 50 years yeah for sure i agree with that but one cannot live on on that capital forever that great mm -hmm, intellectual mm -hmm. history behind us however firmly a tradition is rooted if it is never watered uh, though it dies hard yet in the end it dies and today a great number perhaps the majority of the men and women who handle our affairs write our books and our newspapers carry out our research present our plays and our films speak from our platforms and pulpits yes and who educate our young people have never even in a lingering traditional memory, undergone the scholastic discipline. Less and less do the children who come uh, to be educated bring any of the tradition with them. We have lost the tools of learning, the axe and the wedge, the hammer and the saw, the chisel and the plane, that were so adaptable to all tasks. Instead of them, we have merely a set of complicated jigs, each of which will do but one task and no more. And in using which eye and hand receive no training so that no man ever sees the work as a whole or looks to the end of the work. What use is it to pile task on task and prolong the days of labor if at the close the chief object is left unattained? It is not the fault of the teachers. They work only too hard already. The combined folly of a civilization that has forgotten its own roots is forcing them to shore up the tottering weight of an educational structure that is built upon sand. They are doing for their pupils the work which the pupils themselves ought to do. For the sole true end of education is simply this, to teach men how to learn for themselves. And whatever instruction fails to do this is effort spent in vain. That's the very end of it. All the tools she mentioned were for woodwork, not learning. I'm. <laughs> yep, there it is. Well, that's good. I mean, there's. I mean, I feel like you could go off and continue and just talk about. This is what 1948, 1952. Yes. We lost lost a mic again there. Sorry, audience. Moving from 1948 to 1952, and then just to think about what has happened in the past sort of 60 years from there, um, in terms of education. Um, we, I don't know. It's just we certainly have not solved this problem. Uh, Graham, your point before of. Uh, the classical schools being, or homeschooling, I mean, like being a response to that of not having to fit into the progressive system that we're given. I think I think that is a, a piece of this answer. Um, you, I forget if you talked about it this podcast or a previous one. There is still the the problem that a private school costs money, mm -hmm. and so that that will not be accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I don't see how the solution can be a reform of public school to do this. And even Dorothy Sayers in this says, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, it's a reason why when this happened for the first time, it was by many, many, many people who had taken vows of poverty and did it in local communities, yes. like monasteries. That's, exactly that's right. why this, that's, it's not. And it was the, it was the Catholic Church and Catholics and Lutherans that really kicked that off. It was exactly. So that's, I mean, it, it came out of a conviction that in many ways was a withdrawal from the world. Yes. Um, but before that, education was a paid practice. I, I mean, to be educated, but then you Rome had to pay for it. sank under its own decadence. Yeah, but before that was Greece. Uh, the, it's education costs money, and I think it. Like, if you want 
a good teacher, you pay for it. The greatest orators went and studied under the greatest teachers of rhetoric. And there were some philosophers that would, you know, charge too much money or whatever, and they got criticized. But, you know, school costs money. And even way back then, it cost money. The type of school that doesn't cost money is called parenting. And that's uh, so well. So the um, what happened after Dorothy Sayers is that Catholic churches would add a school on, and then they would pay for that school through the uh, contributions of their members. And so, because people yeah. had taken a vow of poverty, the they were paid, but they weren't. I mean, it was not a um, a competitive wage. No one would call it that. Yeah, it's not a. But that's how they were able to have access for anyone to go to that school because they weren't charging a market wage for it. They were charging a, a poverty wage and able to send their kids to it. And so, I guess the call is really. Sounds familiar. Not so much for any listeners to this podcast to do much unless you run a church, in which case, think about starting a school. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we, we got to wrap it up. So this was Classical Stuff You Should Know. If you want to contact us, you can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net or check us out online at classicalstuff.net. You can find all our episodes there. We update every Tuesday. And if you like what you hear please review yeah review if you want to toss us a review on itunes uh if you really hate us you can you can say that and uh i'll be hurt i'll be honest <laughs> yeah I'll, it'll, I'll, it'll I'll hurt I'll a little personally yeah. yeah it'll sting a little bit yeah. but you know we don't you know we're not getting anything for doing this and it's uh just Dialectic a service so pick us apart that's it yeah that's fine you can shoot us some criticisms and we'll try to apply them and but it helps spread the word and finds more listeners and if we want you know, this movement to, to Keep on spread, then, we, you know, there, there are ways to do it. Yeah. So anyway, thanks again. That was Classical Stuff You Should Know. So this is AJ Graham and B's yep. signing off. See ya.